first uh, letter to the Corinthians. And uh, oh, there I am. Um, I, back in January, when I was looking at the preaching calendar for the year, um, I thought that this might be a good study to follow Proverbs because Paul spends a good chunk of the first part of this letter talking about godly wisdom in comparison to worldly wisdom. And given the topic of what Proverbs was focused on, I thought this might be a nice transition to, to kind of follow into this. So as we get started, I want to give you some, I want to spend some extended time giving you a little background in history. And I have to be careful with this because I absolutely love kind of researching and understanding the context that a letter is written in. And I had to remind myself several times this week, oh yeah, I got a sermon to preach. I got to make sure we get into the passage. But I really think it's important for us to understand the history and the background of Corinth to really appreciate and even in some cases understand what Paul is saying, and why he might be saying that. The context really gives us a whole new understanding of that when we can appreciate uh, the city, the culture, and all the things that are going on at the time that Paul writes this letter. And so I want to look at that together with you. And and as we do, I think it's important to realize, if you're familiar with uh, Corinthians at all, especially this first letter, you'll you'll know that this church is a mess, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on inside of this church because they live within a city that uh, is full of moral and spiritual decay. It's a magnificent city, as I hope you will appreciate this morning, but there is a tremendous influence of that city within the the church itself. In fact, the, the problem was not that there was a church in Corinth. The problem was that there was too much of Corinth in the church. And I think that's why it makes it so relevant for us today. We want Melanie Park Church to have an impact in the world around us. But we want to make sure that the world doesn't have too much of an influence on us so that it distracts us from what we have been called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ carrying out the very mission of God on His behalf. And so that's why what we walk through in Corinthians will be of such significance to us. And that's the relevance that it has. So... Before we look at that together, let me open our time in prayer. Father, as we begin uh, this letter um, filled with uh, great things of truth, um, difficult passages to to understand, I pray that the setting that we uh, begin to look at this morning really brings some clarity, Uh, understanding um, the culture and the context in which Paul writes might give us a real appreciation for what he says under the inspiration of your spirit to a people who are not unlike us, a people that uh, face challenges very similar to us. And so as we read this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, I pray that throughout this letter frequently we see it as one written very applicable to us in our world today. So as we begin, give us that understanding and help us appreciate the significance of the truths that are built within this letter for our benefit and for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the history of Corinth is rich going all the way back to ancient Greece. And if you want to look at this picture, this is kind of an artist's depiction. And what I want to point out here, one is that this is a beautiful city. And I'll show you some other pictures as we go through it, but it was absolutely magnificent. This particular vantage point is looking up from what was called Acrocorinth, or the Upper Corinth. And there's some significance to that that, I want to, that we'll appreciate as we go. But it's kind of looking down on the city itself. 
During classical times, Corinth was a popular city, not all that different from Athens. Athens was about 40 miles up the road, and uh, they uh, shared a very similar prominence with one another. We hear about Athens, don't we? And we know Athens was a big, prominent city during ancient Greece. Well, Corinth was right alongside of it. So whatever you know about Athens, you can apply to Corinth because they were like twin sisters right next to each other. Well, one of the things that I want you to recognize about the popularity of a city like this is that it also becomes a target. And so when the Romans begin to establish their empire, in 146 B.C., they come in and essentially level the city of Corinth. But because of its location and its prominence, they very quickly reestablished that very same city. Uh, much of it was left um, knocked down, so they had to rebuild some of the things. But my point is it was a city that went from riches to ruin and then back to riches again because Julius Caesar would actually make Corinth one of the capital cities in his empire. It quickly became a multicultural mecca. It was known for its wealth and prominence within the Roman Empire. Like I said, it was a capital city, and by some estimates it had as many as a million people inside the city, which in terms of ancient cities, that's huge. That's a huge city. And so it had a lot of prominence. One of the reasons, as you can see from this map, is because of its location. And so the arrow kind of underneath the, the island of Greece there is indicating kind of no man's land. Uh, any history will tell you that ships that tried to chart that course, especially during those times, it was like a death wish. You would avoid it at all costs if you could. And so very often to get inland, they would go inside that space just above Corinth because it was safe, it was protected, and so really it was almost like a funnel where all the sea merchants would come through and right there on the corner inside that inland was Corinth, strategically positioned to bring all those uh, merchants in as a port city. Now, what's also interesting is where that dotted line is, there's a small little piece of land. It's like a little land bridge. It's the only piece of land that connects that part of the world to what exists north of it. So they had kind of a funnel of the sea merchants as well as the only land bridge that existed that took both land and sea into consideration. So as you can imagine... Corinth was a very popular, strategically placed city that helps explain why it was so wealthy and so many merchants came in uh, to the city during that time. Here's a picture of the main... Uh, oh, this is what I wanted to show you on this one. So that little land bridge today has been carved out. And so how many of y'all have been on a cruise that have gone through this channel? Gwen, you've been through it. So you can see that this is a cruise ship and this is what they do. They tow these big ships behind... Uh, a little tugboat that makes their way through that channel. But that little piece of land that I showed you is what this is now looks like. And the roads go over it by train and highway and everything else now. But it just goes to show you how significant that little area really is. Now, this is the picture of the, the main city. And as you look at that, it, it's beautiful, isn't it? Kind of. This is, again, an artist's depiction of what that might have looked like. But if you look at the very back top left, that's Acrocorinth. Okay, that upper high level of the city, that's significant, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit. But just looking at that, you can tell that it's a beautiful city. It's a place that if you lived during this time, you would probably put it on your bucket list, that that's somewhere you would want to go. Um, there was a lot that was happening inside of this city. When I think about Corinth, 
and, and this may not be a fair uh, connection, but what comes to my mind is New York City. It's kind of a city of great prominence within uh, an empire at, at that time. Um, there's a lot of very prominent people. It's a cosmopolitan city. There's a lot of wealthy and highly influential people who live there. That would be Corinth. That's very much what it was like. Not unlike New York City, Corinth attracted people from a variety of cultures. And you see that as you look at their architecture and you look at the religious influence, it's all reflected in the, the wide variety of people that uh, would have called that home. In fact, there were all kinds of temples and worship centers that existed within Corinth, which, and I'm going to try to do this as we go along here in the beginning to give you an appreciation for how this connects to the letter. So in, uh, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to look at several of these passages. This is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. Paul is writing, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and we exist for Him. The point here is that he's making a reference to a reality within that city. And the reality is, is that it was full of temples. It was full of worship centers. They were all over the place. And so when Paul speaks about that culture in which they live that these Christians have come out of, he's recognizing that the influence of that religious worship was pervasive. Okay? It, it, it took all kinds of forms. One of the things that is not surprising probably is the Greek influence remained. So you would go and you would see a lot of the Greek mythology. There was, uh, in fact, if you go to the next slide... I was going to try to point this out to you. This doesn't include everything in the city, but some of the highlights. And so as you walk into the city, um, this is that main road. Right over here is Poseidon and a temple that was set up uh, for him and his worship. Um, over here is this uh, uh, temple to Apollos, and uh, that was set up to uh, worship him. In fact, I think I have a picture of that one uh, next. I want you to see what it looks like. The 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 ruins of Apollos are some of the oldest ruins that exist in Greece. Uh, some of the oldest that exist in that part of the world altogether. And so just to kind of give you some perspective, these uh, stone columns were, were 24 feet tall and about 6 feet wide. And in the original temple that was established for Apollos, there were 38 of those columns. So you can imagine what a, a grand scene that would have been. Along with the worship of Apollos, you had the worship of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of what? Love. So guess what? On top of that hill, that prominent part of the city, that's where her temple was located. And in that temple were employed over a thousand prostitutes. It was a normal part of the worship in that culture. In addition to the... Um, um, Temple to Apollos, Temple to Aphrodite, Poseidon. All these things had a, a culture of, of worship associated with them. Very immoral by and large. Which, let me give you another passage. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do not be deceived, neither, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, effem nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. The point here is that Paul is basically making a sweeping description of the Corinthian culture. That list that he just gave was the reality of the world in which they lived. And he's writing to a people that once were involved in those things. 
And He's calling them to something different. But what I want you to understand and appreciate is that that's the culture that they lived in. That was commonplace. That was normal. It was a part of the worship that existed within that, that city. In addition to what you see with the, the Greek gods and goddesses, I think probably the most influential form of worship was the worship of um, the ruling authorities. Okay, Let me give you an example. Go to the next one. Um, over here this, on this corner was a basilica associated with Julius Caesar. And when you went in there, there were statues of him and all of his family. And again, when you think of basilica, I think of Mexico, right? And the basilicas that exist there for, for worship, that's exactly what this is, except the worship is uh, of, the, of the ruling authorities and their families because they were seen as divine. And so if you were living in that empire, you worshipped the rulers of that empire. I'll give you an example of what one of those looks like. This was one uh, which... Uh, remains today that was uh, built for Octavia, which was uh, Augustus' sister. And, and so this is something that he built that, that was a place of worship for her, um, again, because she was a family member of that ruling party. You can kind of see the, the leaves uh, that kind of fold over on that stone. That's very Corinthian, um, and that's where that comes from, is from this Corinthian culture. And so that was a significant part of... Uh, what existed in that, um, in that city. So you had gods and goddesses from Greek mythology. You had this very dominant force of worshiping the emperor. Um, and and it, it was of such significance. Listen to this. This was something that really caught my eye. One scholar says this. He says, One cannot avoid the impression that the obstacle which stood in the way of the progress of Christianity and the force which would have drawn new adherents adherence back to conformity with the prevailing paganism was the public worship of emperors. It was not a change of heart that might win a Christian convert back to paganism, but the overwhelming pressure to conform imposed by the institutions of his city and the activities of his neighbor. See, the worship of the Roman rulers was pervasive within this culture. They were seen as divine. And so I can only imagine the pressure that this put on Christians in particular because who was responsible for crucifying the Savior that they worshipped? The Roman rulers, right? And so they were under intense pressure because they were actually serving the one that this divine ruler of Rome ultimately put to death. And so that's why a lot of what you're going to find in the letter of Corinthians is a people who are a little bit ashamed of what they hold to as a believer. They're kind of Christians in secret. And we'll see that one of the ways that that reveals itself is that their lives don't look a whole lot different than the people around them. The pressure of that culture has caused them to conform to the ways of that culture. And they just adopted it into the lifestyle of the church. So one of the other things that I want you to, to look at, if you'll go to that next slide, you have this issue of, of, of commerce and the wealth of the city because of its location of sea and land. You have the uh, influence of all this religious worship, the gods and goddesses and the emperor worship. The other thing that's significant about this city is their entertainment. And so up in the top right-hand corner um, is a, a stadium and a theater. Okay? This would be like a college town almost. <laughs> where you have all the athletic venues that you would want to participate in. In fact, 
there were events and games that took place in Corinth that were second only to the Olympics. I mean, it was that popular. People came from all over the place, and there was always entertainment available to you. This, go ahead and go to that next one that you had up there. This seats 20,000 people. <laughs> and it was available as a, as a theater, as an amphitheater to that area. And so the point is that there was never any shortage of things to do in Corinth. Right? Whether that be commerce, whether that be worship and religious activities, whether that be entertainment, it was a happening place. It was an incredible sight to see. It would be one of those places that you would walk into for the first time and it would just take your breath away. You would just be like, wow, this is amazing. That's Corinth. That's the city that these people lived in. So I want you to appreciate that. And as you do, I want you to to understand uh, something that one historian said. He, He says, it's a city abounding in luxury, but inhabited by ungracious people. Isn't that an interesting commentary? What he's referring to is that within the city of Corinth, there was a great disparity between the rich and the poor. There really wasn't much of a middle class. It was the haves and the have-nots. And that's really who was a part of that city. And as by and large, the Corinthian people were very prideful people. They had a lot to be proud of, as you can see from their city, but that infiltrated their character as well. Those of influence typically had worked their way to the top by attaining wealth and then buying friendships, using that wealth to leverage their influence. And again, not unlike New York City, it was a place of uh, rich and famous. And so, as is typical in a culture like that, people usually make their way to positions of influence by rubbing shoulders with the right people and kind of pulling the right strings to to make your way to the top. That was true within Corinth, and it became true within the Corinthian church as well. Egos were inflated, and personalities were larger than life. In fact, if someone was very articulate, if they could speak real well and they were connected to the right people, they would skyrocket to places of power and influence. This was a who-you-know society. And if you were in the right crowd, things went your way. And you had tremendous success and influence. But if you weren't connected to the right people, you were an outcast. You were looked down upon. You were completely forgotten in many cases. So, for example, you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've looked at this passage before. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. One of the things that Paul talks about in the letter is this present crisis. If you don't know the context, you have no idea what he's talking about because there's nothing in the letter that would tell you what that is. Well, history tells us that there was a tremendous agricultural crop failure. And so it was like a famine in the land. And the result in a city like Corinth was that the only people who could really afford daily provisions were the rich. And the poor were dependent upon the graciousness of those rich people. Otherwise, they went without. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when you go to see what's happening within the church of Corinth, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And Paul condemns them because what is happening is that the rich are having their fill of all they want to eat and drink, while in the very same room, the poor remain seated with nothing. And he says, you can't do that. Just because that's what happens in the city doesn't mean that it's okay within the church because you're supposed to take care of one another. And you're not. And that's not right. 
So you can see how that influence of the culture made its way inside of the church. It's an attitude that just began to influence who the Corinthian Christians were. Even Christians became so enamored with worldly success that they lost their focus on spiritual values. You see, God was seen as more of a a support to the demands of the society by allowing those who believed to be successful. It was not all that different than a health and wealth gospel. You know, if you follow God, then He's going to make you successful, wealthy and influential within the culture. So people in the church uh, just didn't see the world as decisively evil. And so many of the values within the culture became very much the values within the church. One influenced the other and not the way you would hope it would be. And so one of the things that we will see when we look at this letter is all these factions that begin to develop. And the reason they develop is because this was the way the city worked. If you were influential, you had a group of people that followed you, and that was a faction within the community. And they were all over the place, depending on who had the most money and influence at the time. They all coexisted. Well, that same reality began to develop within the church. So next week, when we look at Paul's letter, very early on he's going to say, some of you say that you follow Paul. Some of you say that you follow Apollos. Some of you say that you follow Peter. And all they're doing is rallying around a dominant personality not any different than what happens within that culture. And it creates all kinds of division within inside the, the church of Corinth. Even spiritual gifts were manipulated to demonstrate superiority within the church culture. We know this is an issue. It's probably one of the things that 1 Corinthians is most famous for. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about all these spiritual gifts. And the unfortunate reality for the Corinthians is they treated them like, a, like an a la carte line at a cafeteria where you go through and you say, oh, I like that one. Give me a double helping of that one and a little bit of that one. And that one's not really important, so I don't want any of that. And that's the way they treated spiritual gifts. It's as if it was theirs to choose from and be used to bring them to places of power and influence within the church culture. Again, it's the influence of the society that was now impacting the way the church existed to the point that these people no longer became distinctive. As I mentioned earlier, if you looked at the life and, and dynamic of the church community and you looked at the, church, or the, the life and dynamic of the society outside of the church, they would look almost the same. There was not a distinction there and therefore they lost their influence. In fact, we're going to look at some just terrible things that are happening within this church that are actually worse than what happens in the city, if you can believe that. Listen to this one description. This caught my eye as I was working through this during the week. It says, The church was no longer a cohesive community, but instead it had become a club. Their meetings provided important moments of spiritual insight and exaltation but they did not have global implications of moral and spiritual change. The Corinthians could gladly participate in the church as one segment of their lives, but this segment, however important, was not the whole or the center. Their perception of the church and of the significance of their faith could correlate well with a lifestyle which remained fully integrated into the Corinthian society. Basically what they're saying here is that there were a lot of people claiming to be a Christian, 
but their lives looked absolutely no different than the world around them. It's a very troubling reality that Paul is having to deal with. And I think something that relates very relevant to us today. Apparently Paul began to receive some reports of these kinds of things happening within the church in Corinth during his time at Ephesus. This is where he was doing ministry at the time, living there in Ephesus and involved in the church in Ephesus. What's interesting is that at the same time he began to get some of those reports coming to him in Ephesus, he also received a letter from the church in Corinth and they were asking about six specific things that they wanted Paul to speak to, but their questions were phrased in such a way that they really wanted his approval more than his opinion. <laughs> Again, just another indication of the pride of the church leaders during that time. They were trying to manipulate Paul to see things their way instead of really wanting to know what he thought at the time. So Paul writes this letter to respond to those questions, but he also wants to use it to kind of redirect and bring clarity to what the purpose and mission of the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth was supposed to be about. He's going to speak very clearly in an effort to destroy the factions in order to promote unity within the body of Christ. He'll confront the social norms that conflict or contrast with that Christian ethic that they are called to live. And he's going to call their comfort into question. And he's going to ask them to consider more seriously the importance of living with the end in mind. To having that perspective that they have an opportunity within a window. And that window will one day close. And they want to be faithful to that. So he wants them to live in light of a future hope. Paul definitely has his work cut out for him. This church is a mess. But I want us to see, in light of all the things that we've talked about, how he begins this letter. Because as I'll indicate in a little bit, it's not how I would have started it. This church is a mess. They live in a culture that's a mess. And so let's look at how he writes to them there in the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, knowing the background of the setting in which Paul writes and the problems that exist within this church, I find the way he begins this letter very interesting. Because if it were up to me, I would begin it a little bit differently. I would have said something to the effect of, Dear Corinthians, what in the world are you thinking? Your lives look no different than the world around you. And then I would have begun the laundry list of examples to prove my case. But that's not what he does, is it? Instead of focusing on all the things that are wrong within that church, he speaks to the things that he knows to be true and right. It's Paul's way of redirecting their misguided thoughts by not focusing on the criticism of what's wrong, but promoting the good of what's right. He begins by making it clear that his role of authority as an apostle was not one he achieved, achieved in the normal Corinthian way. He says that 
He didn't pull strings or, or rub shoulders with the right people. He says what? That I'm an apostle how? By the will of God. He's trying to make the point that, look, I was in the opposite direction. I'm trying to strengthen a church that I once tried to take down. I was a persecutor of the church. And the only reason that I stand before you as an apostle is because of the will of God who redirected my life to a different end. Paul wants to begin the letter by making the point that he is an apostle by the will of God and not because of something that he happened to do to deserve it or work his way to that position. I also find it interesting he brings up Sosthenes. How many of you ever heard of Sosthenes before? Probably not many of you. It's not a very popular name. And, and, and so I look at this and go, Sosthenes, why, why is he in there? Well, turn over to Acts chapter 18. I don't know if you recognize this, but on that main part of the city, there was actually, uh, in the middle of the street, uh, a bench that was called the Bema Seat. It was the seat of judgment for the city. And when they had cases to try, they were tried in public at that location. As they brought people to whoever was presiding as a judge over the issue, and he would decide it in the midst of all the people. Okay? And so I want you to picture that in your mind because that's exactly what's happening in this passage. They have brought this issue to the Bema seat, to a place of judgment, and this is what happens. But while Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, which is actually the, the area that Corinth is involved in, and Corinth is a capital city of that province, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Okay, that's the Bema seat, right there in the middle of the city. And it says that, uh, saying that this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names of your own law, look after that yourselves. I am unwilling to be judge of these matters. Basically what he's saying is, I don't care about Jewish law. That's of no concern to me. I'm over Roman law. And what you're bringing to me is of no concern. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. So look at what happens. And, if, and he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of, look, there he is, Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. That's Sosthenes. He's the leader of the synagogue. And apparently they faulted him for all the things that were happening as a part of Paul's ministry. He was an outcast. He was publicly ridiculed. And he would have been the last person that anybody of power and influence would have associated themselves with inside that culture. And I think that's the very reason Paul puts his name down. Because he wants to say, I'm not playing that game. In fact, you know who's with me? The one you tried to kill. Sosthenes. Paul's led him to Christ. He's a brother in Christ who is now a partner in ministry with Paul. And he's saying, I'm not doing this on my own. I am working in fellowship with other believers. One of them you know. His name is Sosthenes. And he's a brother in Christ and a partner in ministry and valuable to us all. 
Paul goes on to establish the unity of the church in submission to the authority of God. Notice how he writes to the church of God in Corinth, sanctified and set apart by Christ, who is Lord, both their Lord and ours. You'll see him repeat this several times. And so, based on what we know, the most influential religious component of that city, what point is he trying to make? Who's the Lord according to the Corinthians? Caesar. That's who you worship as divine. That's who you bow down to. And Paul is being very clear. There is only one that we bow down to. There is only one Lord in whom we serve and worship. And His name is Jesus Christ. And he's going to repeat it over and over again in this letter. He's making the point that that Jesus Christ is Lord and sovereign over the Corinthian church, over the Corinthian believers, and over all who call upon His name. Paul's calling the Corinthians to a loving submission to the loving and faithful nature and character of God. The One from whom they receive grace and peace. See, despite all the inadequacies and problems that exist within this church, Paul is reminding them that the one who began a good work is faithful to complete it. He's wanting them to know that they have been called. They have been set apart. They have been unified under the name of Jesus Christ to whom they all bow and worship as the one true Lord and Savior. Isn't that interesting? In light of what's existing within this church. Let's look at how he continues in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. That just, that blows me away. <laughs> All the problems that exist in Corinth, in Corinth, and he's saying, I thank my God. But listen why. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. I think Paul's walking a fine line here because he wants to encourage the Corinthians without inflating their oversized egos that exist already. So in order to do so, notice how he puts the focus not on the things that they've achieved in the typical Corinthian way, but on the things that they've received by the grace of and mercy of God. Things credited to them because of what God had done and not because of what they've accomplished. He says very clearly, it was the grace of God that was given to them in Christ. He says they have everything that they need, not in the world and what that city has to offer, but in Christ. Including the words of wisdom that are so prized within that culture. He says, even the speech and knowledge are a gift from God. Again, knowing the background, do you see how Paul is redirecting the focus from who they are to whose they are? Not on what they achieve, but on what they've received. Because if he launches into this laundry list of things that are wrong, which he will get to and address... But here in the beginning, I think he's protecting from a defensive response. One that says, wait, 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 and then ignores him altogether. Or could listen to what he has to say and start a new list 
of things that they need to start doing in order to be good in the eyes of God. But even those would have a selfish motive attached to them. So he wants them to focus their eyes on Christ. If you will look, you will see that Jesus Christ is listed in every single verse of the first nine verses that we look at this morning. He wants them to know that Jesus is the only solution for their current problems. That they don't have a chance apart from Him. That if there's going to be any way to walk through the muck that this church is in the middle of, is if they turn their eyes towards Christ. If they look at His life and they see in His example and in His teaching the way that they should go. See, the focus is on God's grace that has been given to them. And it undercuts the, the pride and the arrogance of what they've achieved apart from Him. Did you notice how Paul mentions Jesus, like I said, in every single verse? Having been justified by faith, they have peace with God through their Lord Jesus Christ. They stand unified, equal as recipients of God's forgiveness and grace in Christ. He's gifted them. He's gifted them for a purpose. And He wants them to fulfill that purpose that they have been called to as a body of believers. Not for personal gain. Because the reality is that spiritual wealth is not a lot different than material wealth. And that's why it says that it's harder for a rich man to pass get into heaven than it is for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. The reason that's being said is, is to make the point that, listen, when you have a lot of money... You have a lot of distractions that could pull you away from Christ. It doesn't mean if you're rich, you're bad. It just means you have to work that much harder to keep your focus on Christ. Well, spiritual wealth is very similar. You've been given everything that you need in Christ. But sometimes you can use that spiritual wealth for personal gain, just like you can with material wealth. And that's what's happening within the church in Corinth. And so you can see how Paul is establishing this foundation of issues that he's going to speak to at length. Look at verse 7. It says, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There it is again. I told you, it's going to be repeated over and over again. And I want you to appreciate what you understand about the culture. Paul makes the point that the Corinthians have everything they need. They're not lacking in any gift, which is interesting because we know that this church is in a big mess because of the disparity of the gifts, some of which they have really magnified as really important, and others of which they've diminished to mean absolutely nothing. Again, it's kind of that a la carte perspective of, I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that, none of that. They were the ones who were in control. And so when you go to 1 Corinthians 12, you'll see that Paul makes the very clear point. The gifts of God were given to the people of God within the church of God for the common good, not for individual gain and superiority. He goes on to say that those gifts were not given as, as uh, or not selected by the people, that they were actually given by the Spirit according to His will. So it wasn't even their choice to begin with. It was God who chose. 
according to his purpose and his plan. Now, one of the things I want to caution us on when we look at the gifts as it relates to the Corinthian church, we have a tendency to look at that and see the abuse of those gifts and really become um, quick to condemn. Well, I think there's an error of equal um, importance on the other side. And that is when we swing the pendulum so far to the opposite side that we don't talk about the power of the Spirit at work in the lives of God's children at all. Because it scares us. We need to realize that the Spirit of God is the presence of God in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Is that not incredibly significant? Should that not have a powerful influence on your life? Absolutely it should. And so the, the negative impact of overemphasizing, in my mind, is just as dangerous as underemphasizing. So when we go through that together, we need to see what it looks like to be in the middle, where I think God designed it to be in the first place. And I think for us as a church, the issue is not going to be overemphasizing. It's going to be underemphasizing. And so maybe we'll have something to gain from that perspective as well. Now, I want you to see that, that Paul makes it clear that God's provisions have been given to a, for a certain window of time. He says, we are not lacking in any gift. And look, here's the window. As we wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the point he's making here is that, true, God has gifted the church to carry out a specific purpose. But he wants them to understand there's a window of opportunity. Because when Christ returns, the mission is complete and the gifts given to carry out that purpose no longer relevant. And so he wants them to live with that end in mind. He wants them to understand that, look, these things are not for this world. It's not for personal gain and prominence. It's for advancing the kingdom of God to which we've all been called to serve one Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why living with anticipation of Christ's return should change the way we function on a day-to-day basis in the world in which we live. I think it should shape the way we see events happening around the world. It should, see the way, it should influence the way we carry out that mission within the window of opportunity that we have been given. Because, listen to this, the only way that we are unashamed when Christ does return is if he finds us doing exactly what he called and equipped us to do when he established the church. And so that's what we need to ask ourselves as we walk through this together. Does that describe my life, or is it more like what we see in Corinth? God is faithful. And like the church in Corinth, we have been called. Paul is reminding us that we have been set apart to live distinctive lives that should not look like the world around us. If the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of His people, it should contrast dramatically with the evil that exists because of the power of the prince of this world. The question is, is it true for us? Is there a distinctive difference? So as we finish up, I want you to appreciate the importance of the way Paul begins this letter. 
This church is a mess. They live in a city that's a mess. It's absolutely the pit of moral and spiritual decay. But he focuses on what is good and right and true. He focuses on God's faithfulness and not their rebellion, at least not yet. And so as we begin the letter, I want to encourage us to consider the same in our lives. I want us to try to cultivate a heart of praise more than a heart of criticism. Giving more attention to what we see that is good and right and true more than we do in what is wrong. And let me tell you, as I make that statement, I'm making that statement to me. Because it is so easy to become cynical as we look at the reality of the world around us and find all the things that are wrong with it. But let me remind us, God is faithful. Christ will return. He has gifted and equipped us to carry out a mission within a window of opportunity. And the day when He returns, that window is closed. And our opportunity is over. And so we need to live with that end in mind. We need to consider seriously the significance of the presence of God actually living and abiding inside of you. And what difference that should make in how you relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. How you function in the world around you. Your life should look very distinct from that world. And it should be ultimately to carry out that mission to the praise and glory of our one Lord and Savior, the only one to whom we bow and worship, and that's Jesus Christ. So as we walk through this letter together, keep those things in mind and just realize that maybe we're not too far off from where the Corinthians lived in their time in history. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that... Um, we take to heart these words that Paul writes to Corinth, to that church established just uh, about three years before he writes this letter. Not a lot of time to see such a dramatic change in what would have been established from the beginning. Because it's amazing how quickly things can turn if the influence of the world begins to infiltrate the culture of a church. And we're not immune. As a church body, we are equally as susceptible to that influence. There is a depravity, both morally and spiritually, that surrounds us. And very often, our lives don't look a whole lot different than the lifestyles of those who are in that world, who don't bow to you as the one true Lord and Savior of their life. All too often, we see factions and divisions within our church body. All too often we get enamored by so many of the other opportunities of entertainment that we lose sight of the mission and focus that you've called us to in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that this letter moves a little closer to home as we walk through it, understanding perhaps maybe a little bit more the context in which it was written. It would be easy to read this letter and kind of stand off in judgment and say, oh, those bad Corinthians when maybe we're not all that much different. And so as we walk through this together, I pray that we can understand and appreciate the significance of the way this should speak to our lives. And I do pray, Father, that we uh, are impacted 
by the reality of what you've accomplished on our behalf, that grace and peace and forgiveness that has been afforded to us, the spiritual gifts that we lack in none of them, that we have a mission to carry out a purpose in service and submission to our one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we grow in that as we walk through this together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.